0: Welcome to the third episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Olia Hussein, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Head.
1: On The Activist Files, we feature storytellers, activists, and lawyers on the front lines fighting for justice.
0: We're thrilled to announce that we're on iTunes. You can find us on the podcast app, as well as SoundCloud and CCR's website. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and rate us. If you're going to be in New York City on June 21st, join us from 6 to 9 p.m. to celebrate The Activist Files and our official launch on iTunes. Register for the event on our website at ccrjustice.org.
1: On this episode, I interview CCR's three incredible Birth of Justice legal fellows, Brittany Wilson, Stephanie Giannis, and Noor Zephyr. We're lucky to have had them with us for the last two years, and we wanted to catch them before they left. They talk Cardi B, people they admire, and what social justice lawyering looks like at this point in their careers. It's a really great conversation. Plus, Stephanie and Brittany stick around for the real AF. But first, some of the headlines here at CCR.
0: We recently had a disappointing, but not entirely unexpected, ruling in one of our cases. In April, a federal jury in Fort Lauderdale found that the former president of Bolivia and his minister of defense were responsible for extrajudicial killings. The Bolivian military killed more than 50 of its own citizens and injured hundreds in 2003. The landmark decision came after a 10-year legal battle spearheaded by family members of eight people killed in what is known in Bolivia as the Gas War. It marked the first time in history a former head of state sat before his accusers in a U.S. human rights trial. The jury awarded a total of $10 million to the plaintiffs, but we knew that wouldn't be the end of it. The judge sided with the defendants and overturned the unanimous jury decision under something called Rule 50. The families will be appealing the decision, so the fight continues.
1: Last week, as part of our stop-and-frisk case, Floyd v. City of New York, CCR urged a federal court to order the New York City Police Department to implement a set of reforms generated from community input. This process was intended to develop a more thorough set of reforms than the previously court-ordered changes to NYPD written policies and training materials. In a press release, CCR attorney Darius Charney explained that, For decades, the city ignored the community's repeated demands to reform its unconstitutional policing practices. A court order is necessary to ensure that reforms to the systemic constitutional violations that were proven at trial and that continue to this day are not vulnerable to the whims of new NYPD personnel or policy positions.
0: We're happy to announce that two of our panels were chosen for the Netroots Nation conference in New Orleans, August 1st to 4th. If you're down there, come check them out. One will be on the Department of Homeland Security's secret race paper and the surveillance and criminalization of black protest. We'll share what CCR and Color of Change have learned through our Freedom of Information lawsuit and link law enforcement's historic suspicion and targeting of constitutionally protected political speech with what we're seeing happening now against the movement for black lives. Our second panel and film screening will be about the fight against the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, which listeners will be familiar with from our second episode. We'll be talking with local activists about their organizing and all the issues it touches on. So come join us at Netroots. There will be lots of other amazing panels and opportunities to meet inspiring activists.
1: In other news, we were lucky enough to have several of the members of CCR's Justice Delegation in town earlier this month to share their reflections and make a call to action. The group of predominantly U.S. black and brown social justice leaders recently returned from Palestine, where they experienced Israel's occupation firsthand. They met with local activists fighting back under extreme pressures, working for the rights of Palestinian people to self-determination, freedom, and dignity. Follow hashtag JusticeDelegation to see what's coming up. And now, on with the show. This is Ian Head, and I'm joined with our three amazing legal fellows here at CCR. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves.
2: My name is Stephanie Janis, and I'm one of the Bertha fellows on the Government Misconduct and Racial Justice Docket.
3: Hi, I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm the other fellow on the Government Misconduct and Racial Justice Docket.
4: And I'm Noor Zafar. I'm the fellow on the Guantanamo National Security Docket.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for making time, guys. What's your earliest image of lawyers?
2: So I didn't really know any lawyers growing up. I think my earliest memory of lawyers was watching Law & Order (laughs) and just being told by my family, because I was a chatty kid, that I would be a good lawyer because I knew how to argue. As I grew up, I kind of, in college, I think learned about lawyers who were involved in the civil rights movement and I think that was the first time that I knew lawyers could do something on the side of people on the side of justice and from there on I kind of you know was introduced to attorneys when I was in law school but really I cannot remember actively meeting an attorney until I got to law school.
3: I will not want to go with my earliest image of a lawyer, but maybe one of the more memorable images of a lawyer. I would say, like, Atticus Finch. That's probably really cliche, but the old To Kill a Mockingbird gray, black, and white movies. Um, I have different opinions about him now, but then it was like, oh, wow, he's standing up for this this man who was wrongfully accused in this really cool old movie. Um, And then, just growing up, always reading about black history and things like that. Thurgood Marshall was was my model and was
4: my idol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think my response is kind of similar to Stephanie's in that, like, growing up, I, you know, no one in my family is a lawyer, I didn't really know lawyers, Um, I wasn't really exposed to, like, what lawyers can be and kind of what role they play in society, really until, like, until I started thinking about law school and then, like, decided to apply and then got in, I think that's when I was really exposed to, okay, here's all the different ways in which lawyers function in our society, and... I mean, for me, given that my first exposure to lawyers really was in law school, I think that kind of colored it in a slightly less positive way (laughs) than I think, um, you know, had it been growing up, um, you know, looking to civil rights leaders such as Thurgood Marshall and others. So, I've had a really, I guess, interesting and kind of complicated relationship that's still evolving with lawyers and their role in society and kind of my place in that, in this profession.
1: I know at least some of you were involved in artistic and creative things before heading off to law school or even maybe while at law school or you know once you decided to become a lawyer. I have a couple questions related to that. What were they and have they or how have they shaped your identity as a lawyer and an activist today?
3: I am a writer and spoken word artist. Um I competed in a spoken word competition called Brave New Voices, the International Youth Slam Poetry Festival, about 10 years ago now. uh, That makes me feel old. But, yeah, so I used to go around the city competing in slams, and I was on a slam team that went to the nationals, and we made it. uh, We won second place. And I also sing. uh, I sing with a gospel choir called uh, Gospel for Teens. When I was a teenager, we would perform around the city at the Palo Theater. I'm a native New Yorker, so we performed at a bunch of New York venues and competitions. And um, both of those things have been crucial to my development as a lawyer. Just my sense of self and confidence in speaking um, in front of people and, and on a stage. And if I could say so myself, my, my swag and the way that I present certain arguments and certain um, opinions that I have. I think all came from the stage and my being comfortable on a stage. So, I was born to two
2: wonderful working class Puerto Rican parents. Um, And I say that because growing up was tough. And I went to public school, and thankfully, I went to public schools that had music programs. And so, music has been a very big part of my life since I was a kid. And by the time I was 16, I was singing and writing my own songs, and specifically I was doing reggaeton, which at the time, which was many moons ago, I won't say exactly how long ago, (laughs) to have a woman who was a singer and a rapper doing reggaeton wasn't common. So at the age of 16, I was signed to a local record label, and when I was 18, I was signed to Interscope Records, and I was doing full-time tours and singing and, and recording, and For me, I think my drive at the time was, one, I I loved being creative and being vulnerable and creating music. And two, it was was how I thought I was going to get my family out of the situation that we were in. It was always like that North Star for me. Unfortunately, uh, as the Me Too movement and a lot of folks have exposed now... And the conversation is growing now, but back then we very much were dealing with an industry that was very sexist and misogynistic, and I just wasn't willing to compromise my integrity in search of a career, and so I decided to step out of that particular way to do music. Um, And then I went to school and, you know, went to law school, but I think music has always been central to, to the work that I do today in two ways. I'll say one is that I believe music is inherently a part of movements because music moves people and connects people in ways that I don't think anything else can. And we've seen that, right, in in movements in the civil rights movement. We've seen that, you know, specifically in, in different, like, marginalized people's movements. And then the second way I said it's impacted my life is that movement lawyering generally is a space where you have to use the law creatively or use your skills creatively. And you have to think outside the box. And I think having, you know, the experience and kind of the training of being someone who's creative but also just vulnerable to creating allows me to do
4: my work a lot better. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm definitely the least creative of the bunch. (laughs) I have no prior history (laughs) of music, no musical talent whatsoever. Um, But no, I think, I mean, for me, my creative outlet, I think for me is just like, the way i dress and fashion to me is really <laughs> and stephanie knows this cuz i'm late every morning cuz it takes me like an hour to pick I'm out sad. my outfit. She morning. makes me look terrible. <laughs> She's <laughs> <quiet>, y'all. <yo>. She's flying. <laughs> but i mean interesting it's interesting how these things all have like deeper roots that they stem from and just thinking about it now i think for me a lot of this focus on my dress and the way i put myself together coincided with when i started when i decided to start wearing the hijab again, part of that is stemming from in a post 9-11 country where there's so many tropes and stereotypes about what Muslims and specifically Muslim women should look like, should act like, should dress like. I think for me, just really taking ownership of how I present myself and how I carry myself, you know, what kind of um, message I portray to the world in terms of how I dress was, I think, in a way like a political choice almost, because it was me reclaiming my agency that this certain narrative of Islam in this country um, kind of, you know, taking back that narrative and, and speaking for myself as to how I want to be portrayed and, and viewed by society.
1: Mm, powerful answers for me. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Name someone that you look up to and why. And I'm not looking for, I know, I know it's a cheesy, look at, Brittany's giving me this look like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now?
3: I might have two two sort of conflicting answers to this question. So on the one hand, when you say look up to, I feel like that means like aspire to be. And I don't know that I really have anyone that I aspire to be. There are people who I admire for their personal attributes, for their professional attributes, for a bunch of different reasons, but... I don't necessarily want to be like them. If you're just asking, like, who I admire, who I respect, um, I have to be, like, really cliche with this and say my mom. Like, my mom is is such a G. Like, there's not not another way to put it. She raised a black disabled woman in Brownsville, Brooklyn, essentially, basically by herself. And she does it all. She always encouraged me to be independent, to be comfortable with who I was, and I watched her run me from doctor's appointments to slam poetry classes and swimming lessons and things that people wouldn't think that I could do. She was determined to show me that I could do it, show them that I could do it, and not place any limitations on what or who I was going to be. I think especially now that I'm an adult, it's like I don't know how she did that because... I don't know about y'all but I could barely like manage to go to work and come home and fix myself something to eat so I'm like how did she do this so it's definitely my mother
4: I mean I think for me it's hard for me to like name one or two or three people because I think similar to what Brittany was saying there's different attributes that I admire in different people I mean I'll I will say one attribute that I've like come to admire more and more in people, especially people who are working for like social justice causes, um, is just integrity and sincerity. Because, you know, I think one of the things that I just didn't really know before entering this space of social justice lawyering and generally just social justice work is that even a lot of people who are doing this work are doing it for the wrong reasons and with the wrong intentions. A lot of, you know, you still have a lot of people who are in it to kind of self-promote and to you know, are driven a lot by ego, as opposed to, you know, doing what's good for the people and the communities that they're serving. So just over time, like, that's something that I've really come to value and respect a lot in people.
2: So I'll give two people, and it's hard, right, because there's so many people, like, they've expressed in different contexts, which you can say that I look up to, but I'll give two. One is my great-grandmother, my mom's grandma, who I never got to meet, who, since the age of five, was working the tobacco fields in Puerto Rico back in the day. And by the age of 50, um, she lost both of her legs because of the tobacco in her system for so long. And she was what people call illiterate. And yet she still um, was able to own a bed and breakfast in Old San Juan. And you can still see it today. It's the building It's the building right on top of the palis in Old San Juan. And I say that because, you know, oftentimes we think of people that you look up to in a way that's kind of shaped by our careers and kind of shaped by our families. And obviously she's a family member, but she's someone who had to fight without limelight, without with serious um, obstacles in her life. Um, and she was still able to achieve so much at a moment where, you know, colonization was taking place, where women weren't the ones that were owning anything, um, someone who couldn't read or write. And from the stories that I hear, um, she was very loved in her community. She would take in folks who couldn't afford to stay there if they needed somewhere to stay. She loved my mom. (laughs) And so I think by virtue, um, she's always looking over me and and what I do. So she's definitely one of them. Uh, The second person I would say is someone who did have a deep impact in shaping my legal career, and that is... John Powell, who's the director of the Haas Institute for Fair and Inclusive Society and is a professor at Berkeley Law. When I think about him, I think of someone who dedicated his entire life to serving other people. It wasn't just in search of a career. It wasn't for some altruistic reason. It was because his work is an extension of who he is, an extension of what he wants to see in the world. And I hope that in many ways I can use my life in a way that's similar to how he has used his.
1: Such great answers. This is... Name, like, a piece of music or a music artist that you're listening to right now, and just tell me why you're listening to it.
2: So I'm listening to Cardi B a lot. <laughs> Same. <laughs> For a few reasons. One, sister's pregnant, and I'm pregnant, so, you know, we got this vibe going on. She's Dominican, my grandfather's Dominican, and as a Dominican woman doing rap in English, though people would contend whether or not it's rap, whatever. Whatever she's doing, she's an artist. She's in the, quote, you know, English-American... Sector, And I just, I really appreciate having someone that has had similar life experiences and in some ways was doing music in a way that I think I was doing a long time ago, similarly. And it's kind of like, she doesn't hide it. She's genuine. She's true to herself. uh, And I love that about her. And, you know, specifically as it relates to her kind of being pregnant, like I also appreciate that she's not trying to be something that she's not and that she's not trying to like be respectable now Or the idea that you can't be, you know, for lack of a better word, you can't be sexy and a mom and a professional. Um, And I think she kind of is is showing all those qualities. So, yeah, I love me some Cardi B.
4: I'm also going to say Cardi B, but I have no profound, (laughs) deep reason. Her music just sounds good to my ear. So (laughs) that's why I've been listening to her a lot lately.
3: I listen to everything all the time. Like, I don't know. I love some some old school R&B soul uh, jazz gospel. Yesterday, I was listening to Anita Baker because she's Anita Baker, and um, she had she did a performance where Regina Bell joined her on stage, and and they sang a duet of "You Bring Me Joy," and I was just like, okay, I loved it. So, and I'm probably, you're, you're probably like, how old is she? Yeah, I know good music. But, um, so yeah, I mean, Brandy is one of my favorite singers of all time, so I feel like I'm always listening to something that she has in rotation. I listen to the Full Moon album at least once a week for the riffs and runs, so, yeah. Brittany's been repping Brandy since day one. just (laughs) want
2: to say
1: that. Yeah, yeah. Brittany comes by and tells me, gives me recommendations on what to be listening to. So you're all kind of near the end of the fellowship. What's next?
3: I'll say finally being allowed to do the work. We've been doing the work, but to be able to put these tools to direct use for the things that I've always wanted to on behalf of the communities that I represent and finally being able to have at least somewhat of a say in terms of you know the cases I take on, um, the causes that I represent and the work that I do. Just autonomy, be a real lawyer. Pinocchio, be a
2: real boy. So I'm excited to really just continue to hone my my legal skills, specifically just become a really good technical attorney. I think being in movements and being a movement lawyer, what I've learned from talking to organizers is the growing idea of movement lawyering and some movement lawyers confusing themselves for organizers and organizers being pretty annoyed about that and you know when i talk to them i'm like what is it that you need from us and they're like we need you guys to be really good at your job (laughs) to help us and so i think that for the next thing that i'm just really really excited to do is just you know become a knife like win for people in the way that whatever it is they need and so that's what's next i think the other thing that's next for me is uh welcoming baby girl into the world (laughs) but um yeah excited about those things
4: I think for me it's also continuing to just hone in on my like technical legal skills I think being at CCR I learned that as Stephanie mentioned like I think as people who are trained as lawyers like our value added to movement spaces is the legal expertise and technical know-how that we can bring so I think just continuing to um, refine and develop those skills but also at the same time like really remaining Grounded in why I do the work that I do. And because I think the other extreme of, you know, the highly technical lawyer is kind of getting disengaged from who the law should be serving and who we're fighting on behalf of. So I think just really continuing to strike a good balance between staying grounded in the communities that I'm fighting for, but also really refining my skills so that I can be a better advocate for those communities.
1: It feels important important these days to remember to take time to find the levity in this work, humor, joy, compassion. In that vein, can you share a story from your time here?
3: Uh, we took a trip to Berlin in the beginning of our fellowship. I think all of us just sitting, like, around in my hotel room listening to music and talking about our future as lawyers and me predicting, you know, the directions that some of them are going to go down and, like, who was, was it Nora? Was it you that had to go out for ice cream? At no, like we midnight? went to get
4: Crips. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> some sort of dessert, because I have like the biggest sweet tooth, So I was like, I need to go find some dessert. And it was like right midnight.
3: <laughs> midnight in a foreign country. And I'm like, you're going to get dessert? Okay. So I feel like those moments of us like getting the bond and getting the, you know, talk about what we want to do with ourselves and and our futures are moments that I remember. Mm.
1: Thank you guys. We really appreciate it you guys coming in and making time to be on the activist files.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: The real AF. The The real real AF. AF. The real AF. Yeah, I just need you to say the real AF.
0: The real AF. Hey, so it's Aaliyah, and I'm here with our two awesome fellows, Brittany Wilson and Stephanie Janis. Um and we're going to ask you some important questions. Are you ladies ready? Yeah. Ready. Great. Um so Stephanie, I'm going to start with you. Stephanie, would you rather read an awesome book or watch a good movie?
2: I would rather watch an awesome movie, to be fair. <laughs> um I love movies. I think movies are great. I think they have this at least in my mind they have this like really cool effect of like just I can escape from the world while I'm watching them. But reading books, and it's partly because I read nonfiction, doesn't have that effect for me. So I would choose watching a movie.
0: Brittany, would you rather be on a survival reality show or a dating game <laughs> show?
3: Dating game show. Oh, no. Hashtag single 2018. That's so <laughs> explanatory.
0: Stephanie, would you rather listen to music from the 70s or music from today?
2: I would rather listen to music from today, uh, partly because I love dancing, and like, low-key, I just love trap music, and I love reggaeton, and I love hip-hop, and I can't see myself living without it, so definitely today's music.
3: I'm going with the 70s all day. Disco, soul music, uh. Nah. We're going to party, we're going to soul train it out in the 70s. <laughs>
0: Brittany, would you rather write a book or have a book written about you?
3: Write a book. Definitely. That's I'm going to do that anyway, one day. So definitely write a book. I'm a writer.
0: All right. What, are you, what would you write about?
3: All the things. I'm going to write autobiography. At one point in my life, I thought about writing a poetry book because I'm a poet. Don't know if I'll still do that or not. Maybe. Um, fiction book. I write every genre, so I could see myself having a book in every genre if I had the time.
0: That's amazing. I'd love to read those. Brittany, would you rather play one-on-one against Shaq or Steph Curry?
3: Ooh, uh, Shaq is gonna be is is, is gonna be pretty easy because I feel like I could foul him and then he can't hit the free throws. Steph Curry, like you don't want to play against Steph Curry because he could just hit the shots from anywhere on the court. You can't guard that. Yeah, Shaq and Shaq would be funny.
0: I feel like Stephanie has some commentary she wants to add.
2: Listen, I would definitely go against Steph Curry, not because I would win, but because if I could just meet him and his bay, I would be very happy. <laughs> Bite me over to have some of her food. Yeah, it'd be good. <laughs>